Well, this morning we are taking the theme of prayer. The title of the sermon is Staying With Him, Staying With Him. And I'm borrowing from the instruction that he gave to Peter, James and John in the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark 14, verse 34. Stay here and watch, said stay here and watch. Okay, he went a little farther than them, but he was within earshot of them, I imagine, within sight of them, I imagine. And they had the privilege, well, had they have exercised it, to have been in close proximity to a most, most remarkable event as our saviour there was troubled, deeply distressed that my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. He casts himself, doesn't he, upon the ground and he prays earnestly to his father. Well, the disciples, well, there they were. And really, they were encouraged themselves to pray. Verse 38, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And yet we find them sleeping, don't we? This really is a deep, deep matter of great urgency for us to pray. But it's hard work, and that we will come to a little bit more in a moment. It was hard work for our Saviour, not because, as later on we learned, that we may be willing in spirit indeed, but weak in flesh, that the subject matter of his prayer was what made it very, very hard work for him. Perspiring, wasn't he, in his agony, that it was like drops of blood. His sweat was like drops of blood. So his whole being was being poured out. He was just being emptied of life as he was sorrowful there, even to death. What it felt like for him. It felt like he was dying as he took to heart the subject matter of what lay ahead of him immediately. And well, he knew what lay ahead. The cross was always there, wasn't it? Its shadow kind of cast over his life to that point. He knew what business he was about, that he'd come into this world to save sinners, that there was no escaping death for that. And it would require of him every ounce of his being, all that he was, and that he would have to bear the wrath of God. That's what he felt. That's what he could see ahead of him. And the immediacy of it now is there with him. He is indeed our mediator. He is indeed fully human. And in that way in which particular things come into focus at particular times, his work of preaching and ministry had absorbed him to that point. But now fully engaged with what lay ahead in the very, very near future. Knew his betrayer was at hand knew that his time in the garden would be but brief, and he knew all that would follow. He told them, hadn't he, that he was going to be there, taken, seized by the Jews, by the leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, would seize him. They're going to mock him, spit upon him, hand him over to the Gentiles. They would do the same to him, and that they would put him to death. Oh, yes, had joys set before him, his resurrection, but there was plenty to have to do before he got to that joyous, momentous moment. So that was there with him, and so heavy a weight, so 
as I said, for everything in him, recoiled from it, that he asked that if this hour could pass from him, if somehow there could be plan B, as if there could be some other way. But no, there couldn't be. And he knew that too and submitted to it. He brought all that his pure soil recoiled from to have to bear sin, to have to, he who had fellowship with his father, to forgo that which was best, that which he knew was the most excellent fellowship, to have to lose it, instead have a curse upon him. Well, it required all of him. And though he looked at it, looked it full on, and only he could know in advance what it would be like. So he submitted himself to his father. What a work that was of prayer. Unique, unique to him, never to be repeated. We are glad to say he is now away from that. I'm going to say some things about his high priesthood in a moment as he prays at the right hand of God for his people. But there were the disciples in contrast, hard work for them to watch and pray, hard work for them to stay here and watch. And they were asleep instead. That flesh had won that though they might have cottoned on that something momentous was happening. And we read in another gospel that they too were sorrowful. But rather than it lead them to pray, it led them to sleep. And time and time again, the third time we read verse 41, are you still sleeping and resting? As if this was the moment to be sleeping and resting. Here was the most momentous event unfolding. There they were, privy, Peter, James and John, particularly privy to it, within touching distance of the agony of the Son of God. They were asleep. They were sleeping. Sleep had overcome them. And we feel the reproach, don't we, of the Savior, his reproach to them again and again. Verse 37, very personal here. He said it to Peter, didn't he? Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? This is full of warning, isn't it? The man who said that he would never leave, never forsake the Lord, if all the others did. He never would. He would go and follow even unto death. Simon, are you sleeping? There's the pointed question to him. There's no answer that we read because there's none that they could give. And it's, it's there, isn't it? And it's, it's asked again of them. And in verse 41, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. We're past this now. Nothing else I can say because the hour has come. History is moving on. And you at the moment are left behind. If you will, you're on the wrong side of history. You're not in touch with it. And too late now, you're sleeping or you're watching. You missed your moment with this. And so that reproach, well, we feel that reproach, don't we? Here we are, the Bible. Here we are, if we are saved people with so great salvation, so great saviour, one who is a king of love, our shepherd is. And yet often we're sleeping, friends, aren't we? We're sleeping. But we can be like here when we set our hearts to pray. I can talk about a man who does this at times, sets his heart to pray and ends up asleep, ends up sleeping. 
surrounded by so great things, great themes, great truth, a great God before whom we come. That our Lord says, Abba, Father, and we can say it too. What a privilege that that is. Adopted children that we are, his is a, a natural affinity with his father. Ours is an unnatural one, but is now ours and given us through the salvation we have, the gift of righteousness brought us to this. And now we can do what really is against nature and call our God, Abba, Father, closeness and intimacy. Yeah, there it is. There's our Lord, alert, vigilant, and we instead so often are asleep. Or even if we are awake and in some measure praying, well, we might just as well have been asleep sometimes because there's not much happening in our prayer, not much that we're bringing to it, much urgency, vitality. And oh, we feel the reproach. But no, we would be willing in spirit. We would say, no, we want to go beyond this. We want to be better than this. We want to be there beside our Savior. We want to stay with him and watch. We want to pray. And we want to be able to enter into this new year. End of January, isn't it now? But, well, we still count it new year. And we want to be more urgent, watchful, vigilant, prayerful. Because there's no greater duty as Christians, if that's what we are, that we have this morning and to pray, to pray. So first heading, a great need to pray. Something so vital, we do it so little for an activity in which the Bible attaches such importance is one that falls upon our very deaf Yes, we have to ask ourselves why, if this is so important, who who would be a Christian and concede or say somewhere in their soul, God doesn't count for much? Well, I hope we wouldn't be thinking that. If God counts for everything, then why do we pray so little? Why do we regard prayer as so optional? Meetings for prayer and such things as that. It's not as if the Bible is silent on prayer. We read Daniel chapter 9. We could have read Nehemiah chapter 9. Or we could have read the Psalms. But they are full of prayers, petitions, thanksgivings, whatever kind of prayer. And it's all there. Because we are instructed to draw as near as we can to our Savior in prayer. And while the disciples were witnesses to something unique, the labors of our Savior in prayer, unique, he's only going to die once, friends, isn't he? And we're so glad that that death was the death of deaths. No need for a further death of Christ. We don't have to somehow conjure it up all over again. It's finished. Oh, that's good news. It's finished. Because there he brought an end to transgression. There he died once for all. Bring us then finally to himself in such reconciliation. Oh, no, we can't witness what the disciples did. And yet, do we not borrow a little from Daniel and his burden? And do we not borrow a little from what we find in our Saviour here? And if we think of him now, the right hand of God, do we think of him detached? Do we think of him remote? Somehow his humanity has been drained out of him by his glorification. 
as though he doesn't feel for churches and believers, as though he doesn't feel for us and be in some agony for us, that we ourselves might catch something of his agony, burden for us. You know, the letters to the church, and we thought a little of this, didn't we, the other week in Philadelphia, that they're not written in a dispassionate way. He urges us to be earnest and to repent. He warns with great affection, but great solemnity. And he is not a high priest, and this we learn, don't we, who cannot be touched with our infirmities. But was every way, was he not tempted as we are, yet without sin? Still there, still fully human, still fully engaged. Not too busy, because he's in heaven now. Can't be bothered with the earth anymore. No, very bothered with the earth, very taken up with churches, very consumed with their needs. Nations and churches within nations. There's Daniel very much taken up, isn't he there? No, there's some specifics again relating to the promise of Jeremiah, the 70 years and what Jerusalem represented then compared with now. Though there are differences. Nevertheless, that thought, Daniel, feeling a burden, feeling a need to pray and much be in earnest. It's not as if our saviour now is somehow detached, lost that kind of thought and feeling. And he doesn't have to wrestle now with his own death and the thought of that and bearing the wrath of God. But he knows us, our needs and our sufferings and what we have by way of the wider culture, how it bears down upon us. He's not lacking interest or fellow feeling for us in that. And we draw near to him. And we don't catch indifference, actually. We catch that burden. We don't find a detachment that our prayers then are offered at some sort of low temperature setting. We come with energy, vigor, because we've been near him. We've stayed with him. In prayer, we have drawn near and we take away from that proximity to him and what we should feel as spiritually minded men and women. Oh, friends, do you not feel at the moment in the world, our nation, perhaps even suggest in churches, evangelical reform ones at that? Oh, much upheaval that these are momentous times that we are in, that we are seeing changes and potential changes out there. Oh, well, we haven't time to draw upon all the things to do with global reset or the rest of it. And there is a fair amount of backlash actually against such globalizing governance and, and all of that. It's proved actually a pretty massive failure as far as I can see. And yet the clamor for it amongst some is very, very strong. And the events of the last couple of years have made those voices louder, more strident, more obvious. We're living in momentous times. We've seen governments, still in parts of the world today, governments moving liberty from people, requiring this, requiring that, requiring the other of us. And not always doing it apologetically. Not always doing it, particularly regarding the church, with a sense of the gravity of what they're asking us to do. We have seen fear. 
an epidemic of fear. If nobody's caught uh, COVID always, they've caught fear, massive amounts of fear, still out there, or it's in the church too. But that has told us something. And it's shown us how easy it is to leverage fear to secure conformity. Conformity is good or bad, debate another day. But to secure conformity, the leveraging of that and investigation, we understand, is to be done into the government's nudge unit, which uh, helped really there to play a few dark arts on the population and uh, try to secure our conformity to rules based upon generating fear. And I think we've seen too, and I don't think this is controversial, the emptiness of our political rulers. We've seen emptiness. Well, their parties and everything else there, I think we've probably got them in deep water. And uh, this uh, civil servant, whose name we never heard of before, I'm sure, Sue Gray, and this report, which is going to be quite a report when it comes. But we've just seen something lacking, something lacking in the political class, something lacking senior civil servants, something lacking in these special advisors, well-paid young people that they are. And yet we found them empty, empty when they needed actually to be clear and firm. We've seen perhaps authoritarianism, totalitarianism. We've seen governments in other parts of the world very strong. Well, they've been strong enough here, we might say, but in other parts of the world, I'm sure you've read about it more than I have, that it's been very strong. And these give us pause for thought. And we feel that we need to be laboring in prayer. Big things happening, big events taking place, and all the wokedom there. Don't get me started on that, please. But uh, all the progressive thinking, we'll call it that, put that in inverted commas, please. But all the new ideas that there are about race and about gender and so on and so on and so on. Something big's happening. And friends, we need to catch that. Because I think our Lord is burdened for churches in the midst of that, in this world, our nations, and seeing these things. And maybe you, like I, were a little disappointed that the Anglican Church, well, we have to name the names, don't we, sometimes, the Anglican Church and its hierarchy. Right at the beginning, March 2020, the beginnings of lockdown and everything else, Instructed clergy, do not even go in your building. Don't even go in the church building. Disappeared, disappeared away. I had no message to give, no gospel. People are going to die. We're led to believe they might in such quantity. Were we not best preparing people for eternity? The established church there, though, with noble exceptions, thought, nope, everybody should just stay at home. And we're going to do the same. That's the best message that we can give. Well, friends, a great, great need to pray. Great need for understanding. There was Daniel with the help of the prophet Jeremiah. There, there he was reflecting upon his nation, seeing what's left when you depart from God. I think we've seen the fruition, what a nation looks like when it departs from God. It's got nothing there. Political class, got nothing there. The church, sadly, departed from God. Well, and how, in many places, had nothing there. Well, nothing to say, no message to give. And that was painfully obvious through the pandemic. Daniel felt that. And we need to feel it too. For I think heaven feels that burden as well on our behalf. And we communicate that 
from our praying, interceding high priest. We need to pray. We need to pray that we'll be servants of God in the days ahead. We would be strong. We would not fail where the disciples failed, but that we would be there. We'd be found in post. We'd be found there watching, ready and alert, well taught, grounded in the Bible like Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. We need to pray for discernment. Why did not Daniel have that? Wisest of all the rulers, Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, who Daniel recently had a change of empire, as it were, but still there, a loyal civil servant, and what a wise one. Nobody had the wisdom of him. Just uh, his three friends there, they too, full of wisdom. Men of God. We need to be men and women of God. Wisdom, discernment, faith, faithfulness, minds expanding to take in more truth and to engage with that truth and to apply that truth to the world that we find ourselves in. Get near to him and then stay near to him and understand what we're to do. My second heading, the battle to pray. Where was the disciples? They lost that battle there, didn't they? They were sleeping because it's a battle. It's a battle then in that particular and unique place, but it's a battle for us too. And if those disciples there, their sorrowfulness had become counterproductive. It hadn't led to prayer. Let's make sure that if we're feeling sorrowful, that it leads to prayer and not to just tut-tutting or complaining about the government or whatever national pastimes we indulge in. No, let it lead to prayer. Let it be like Daniel issuing into heartfelt plea and petition. Because there's the flesh, verse 38. It works against us. Somewhere we agree entirely how delightful to have communion with God. How vital, how valuable. And yet then the flesh intervenes. Tiredness sometimes, weariness, and just the sheer sinfulness of it. What happens? Well, we, we back off hard work. How about that for starters? Who, who, who likes hard work? Who, if they can say, well, I'll do something else instead, would take up the burden of praying, the hard work, the hard labor, laboring in prayer. That's what it talks about. Work, perspiration. That's what our Savior was doing. That's what he was inviting his disciples to share something of that. Yet it was hard work and they backed off it. So do we. It is work. We have to find words to say. We, we have to do some thinking. We, we have to bring ourselves perhaps from a bit of a sleepy spiritual state into an awake spiritual state. We have to pray. And many of us there, I count myself in the number, it's hard work. And we often say, well, like hard work, or things that are going to be oh, hard job that. You've got those jobs around the house you kept postponing. You're going to have to go up in the roof and get this down or out there and find some tool that you're pretty sure you've kind of lost. It'll take an age to find it and then it probably won't work and the whole job will be a bodge and you postpone it. And prayer can be like that. And we postpone it. We put it off to tomorrow because it's hard work. It is hard work. Just can't hide that from us. And temptations come. My Lord said, didn't he then, how those words were spoken to Peter who was just a few hours away from denying the Lord three times. Comes and finds him sleeping three times and could have done with being awake because he's going to enter into temptation. For all his willingness 
I'll go with you wherever you go. I'll go to prison with you. I'll die with you. It's not going to happen. He's going to deny the Lord three times and in just a few hours' time because the flesh is weak. The spirit indeed is willing. The flesh is weak. And our flesh is weak. Those temptations find us weak points. And prayer becomes difficult because, because of unanswered prayer. Prayers prayed that are still unaccounted for. Never came home. Never got the reply to that. Sent out the letter. Somehow we never felt we got a reply to that one. People have come. People have gone. People have died. And we didn't see what we we're looking for in their lives. And it can discourage us. We can feel that God, therefore, does not hear, that actually he doesn't incline his ear after all. He's not listening, not interested. He's disengaged from us. And that is unbelief. Well, we feel, forget it, don't even start. Can you pray like Daniel? Can you pray like Nehemiah? Can you pray like the apostles in Acts chapter 4, which then the building shook? Well, no, we have to confess we're, we're not near that. Not near it. And we can therefore think, well, we can't bring sufficient, sufficient power, urgency, warmth, feeling, depth, depth of understanding, communion with God and praying out of that knowledge. So let's not even try. Let's not even begin. That's a temptation. and We must overcome it. It's a battle that we must win. Well, devil hates to see even the weakest saint upon his knees. True trembles when he sees that because even i'm afraid there for him our weak prayers and the prayers that we feel so little in and wished we felt more god hears god takes of that it's what a high priest remember who takes bad prayers and weak prayers and improves them infinitely and satan knows that he, he knows the bible quite well actually and he knows that if we're praying there's danger for him. This will play out badly for him. And even those who are feeble in faith, he doesn't like that because actually what we are doing is showing faith. Little faith, but little faith is still faith. And God is pleased with faith and he rewards faith. And that displeases the devil. Whatever pleases God displeases the devil. And God is pleased with our prayers. He is pleased when we come to him. I want to be with him, want to stay with him, because the results are always good. That we come away with more faith. We come away with more trust. Our hearts are made more willing to obey. We have stronger desires for holiness and greater capacities to love. And the devil hates all of that, hates every part of it, every particle of it. And yet, when we battle through to pray, that's what we come away with. Not lost in us, is it? What happened to those sleeping disciples when they hadn't watched and prayed and they enter into temptation? We read it. When the soldiers come and there's Judas at the helm, they arrest our Lord. Then in verse 50 of Mark 14, it's a short verse, isn't it? It so hits you in the heart. And they all forsook him and fled. What they did, they all forsook him and fled. We know they were going to strike the shepherd and the sheep would be scattered. And we know that he prayed for them, but their faith would not fail them. But that's in the longer term, right here, right now. They've gone. They are weak. They are fearful. They've scattered. 
I suck him and slept. Ah, oh, that lack of prayer, that sleeping, left them so unprepared, so weak, didn't it? It'll leave us weak too. It'll leave us lacking faith. It'll leave us not able to resist temptation. It'll leave us preferring the world to holiness and communion with God. It's a battle that's worth winning, isn't it? It's a battle with rich promise. And there's the failure if we don't even engage in it. So my final brief heading. Will you pray? Will you pray? Will I pray? Preacher, listen to yourself, please. Will I pray? Ah, we must, mustn't we? Can we not watch one hour? Can we not stay with him? That time, spend that time with him, share our burdens with him and perhaps gain his burden, his righteous burden, his pure burdens. Feel as he feels for his people now, for his churches. Here we are, little causes amidst many foes, great dangers, great perils, great hatred against us, friends. That's where we are. Can't deny it, can we? And we're saying there that we will draw near. We will draw near. The Lord would ask us, wouldn't he pointedly, do you value me? Do you value me that much that you'll seek me and watch with me and stay with me, battle through that hour with me? Am I that important to you? Do you have sufficient love for me that you will do that? Much as Peter is asked, isn't he, in John 21 there, when the risen Lord kind of undoes the damage of the three denials three times. Do you love me? Simon Peter, son of Jonah. In fact, do you love me more than these? And he protests, doesn't he, Lord? You know, I do love you. That spirit in the true child of God is willing. It's willing. Ah, let's let that willingness come out. Let it be in the fullness of what prayer is. We haven't time to develop all of that, have we? Adoration, thanksgiving, longings, confessions, petitions. Look at Daniel's prayer, chapter 9. It gives us some very good hints there. But our Lord, and it's so touching, isn't it? There in the garden, he desired the companionship, the friendship of those weak men. Peter, James and John, then the other the other eight. <laughs> There's another one that he proved a bit of a disappointment, hadn't he just? He'd been desired the companionship of his friends. And he hasn't lost that desire now. That our great high priest values our friendship still. Values us drawing near to him. He's not in the garden on his knees, sweating agonies. He's in the glory of heaven. And he knows all the things that lie ahead in the future. What glory is his, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But he'd have us draw near to him. He's pleased if we seek him out, that if we draw near to him and in that express faith, in that express our love to him, he's pleased with that. Still the appeals of the Song of Solomon and elsewhere are there. Come away with me, my beloved. Spend time with me. Draw near to me. Let's come away from everything else. We may be together. That I may share much with you and you can share your heart with me. For I hear all of it, and I know all of it. And the gains for it are immense. If we stay with him, why, when we come away to our work, when we come away to our normal living out there in the world, we take that with us. Not so entering into temptation. Not so likely to forsake what is good and flee. 
more likely to come with something good, mature, discerning and wise, word in season perhaps to people, a comment there that may carry some weight. Oh, that God would share his burden with us, and we with him, coming near to him, staying near to him, even if it's hard work. And even if it is going to be sorrows that we have to feel and bear and own because the riches of it, the benefits of it are just so, so immense. Friends, as we knew our commitment that we will seek the Lord or our heart.